listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Please stand with me for the reading of scripture. Today's scripture reading is from Paul to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21 through chapter 1, 5, verse 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one son by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of a slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, but just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Uh, if you have been following us in our study through the book of Galatians, you know that for the last three and a half chapters, the Apostle Paul has been addressing issues that have come up from from a variety of different angles from these teachers that have come into the church at Galatia and uh, undermining Paul's message in the gospel. They've, They've been telling the Gentile believers that to know that they're really part of the community of God's people, they need to become Jewish, that faith in Jesus isn't enough. If you're going to believe in Israel's Messiah, then you have to become an Israelite. You have to take on all the Torah. You have to take on all the uh, outward expressions of Torah observance, circumcision, and uh, kosher food, and, and all of it. And it's causing a lot of confusion and a lot of concern. And Paul's response, as Pastor Joey started us uh, looking at last week in verses 12 through 20, is a relationship intervention. And he took us through the first couple of steps of that last week, remember? Uh, First of all, reinforce the value of the relationship. You are my children in whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. I I care about you. You know that you matter to me. And I I want what's best for you. And, And then second, try and point out how bad, how serious this situation is. Please believe me when I say this. This is doing no good for you. Maybe, maybe you've been in some interventions like that or been on the receiving end of them. That guy is no good for you. He doesn't really care about you. You know, when you talk to people that way, I, I don't think you really hear how it's coming across. Or I, I know you mean well, but, but when you do that, there's this negative outcome. He's trying to help them see the, the seriousness of the problem. And, and this week, we're going to move on to steps three and four in that relationship intervention. 
He starts off with a story to, to add some emotional weight to what he's saying. And he's trying to help them look down the path that they're on to the future. Essentially saying, look, you know I care about you and, and this is a problem. You may think I'm overreacting, but let me help you see where this goes if nothing changes. Because believe me, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, you're going to look back with a lot of regret and wish that you had listened to this warning, that the path that you were on is going to end up in misery and brokenness and destruction. And then he finally comes to the application that to drop the hammer, you've got to break off the relationship. Here's the heart of, I think, what Paul's getting at in this passage. You deserve better. You deserve better. This is not what God made you for. This is not what he saved you for. This is not God's good purposes for you. You don't have to listen to the message that those uh, law-loving people are bringing on to you. God made you not to be slaves to law-keeping, but to be free in Christ, to be alive. God made you to live for the purposes that he's created you for. You were made for better. And, and he brings all those appeals in the last four chapters together in that first verse of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 21. It's on page 20 of your Galatians scripture journals, or if you're using one of the Bibles uh, in the seat in front of you, it's on page 1157. So uh, let's jump in and look at this together. Uh, one commentator says this section is a tour de force. It is kind of a masterpiece of uh, Paul's argument. He's looking back to Genesis chapters 15 to 21, and he has that in mind, and, and he starts this section in verse 22 with a simple statement. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, and then he brings it to a simple conclusion in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. But to get from one to the other, he goes on a journey that most commentators agree is probably one of the most complicated and hard to understand in all of Paul's writings. So I want to say thank you to Pastor Joey for letting me have this passage today. Paul is doing some unique things here that, that it will benefit from slowing down to pay attention to. So starting in verse 21. He basically begins by asking, okay, you who say you want to be under the law, who say that we need to follow God's law as his people, to know that we are his people, have you really thought that through? Are, are you sure you understand what the law says? And Paul is using the law in a couple of senses. There's, there's a narrow sense here in which the law is the 613 commandments of the old covenant. But there's a broader sense in which the law is really just the word of God. It's, it's his revelation. So he's looking back not to a passage in Deuteronomy with a specific command, but to the Old Testament story itself. And, and he goes back in verses 22 and 23. It's written 
in that law that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay, so here's the background. Back in Genesis 15, God had already made this promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless you and provide a multitude of offspring and you're going to uh, there would be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and you're going to be a blessing to the whole nations of the world. But time has gone on, and there's no heir. And so Abraham and Sarah are starting to get a little worried and a little weary of this, and they decide that they're going to help God out using their own resources. So uh, the Bible does not pull any punches. This is a pretty unpleasant story. Sarah gives her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to father a child with. It was wrong today and it's wrong then. This was not God's plan or intention. So when Paul says in verse 23 that this child was born, 23, according to the flesh, the son of the slave woman, he's simply saying that this was the product of human self-reliance. Of, of us taking matters, them taking matters into their own hands to kind of help God's plan along. And so Abraham is ceasing to rely on God's promise and God's power to fulfill what he said he would do. And he's going to make it happen himself. So the child is born, Ishmael is born, and he grows up. Then 14 years later, Genesis 17, God shows up again. And he says, no, really, I'm going to make this happen. I told you I was going to provide an heir. And and he removes the inability, and by his own miraculous power, he enables Abraham and Sarah at 90 and 100 years old almost to actually conceive and bear a son. And he does it in a way intentionally that removes any basis for human boasting or self-reliance or pride. That's the point of verse 23, that the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Isaac's birth was the result of God's miraculous power, his fulfilling the promise of what only he could do. And then in verse 24, Paul says, okay, now those are, those are the facts, but, but we can look at them as kind of an allegory, kind of typology. He's not saying it's fantasy. He's not saying it's not history. He's saying they represent things bigger than themselves. They, they represent two covenants, Paul says. The woman from Mount Sinai, the one bearing children for slavery is Hagar. That's Mount Sinai in Arabia. And she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Now, commentators aren't totally sure why he mentions Arabia there particularly, but I think there's like a geographical significance to it, like that that's outside the promised land. That's the whole point that that he's drawing here. The, The key question is, how does Hagar and her affair with Abraham and the son Ishmael, how are they like the law from Mount Sinai. Hagar's giving birth to Ishmael was done through the flesh. It was done in human power. Abraham and Hagar tried to get God's blessing by their own strength without relying on his enablement. And in a sense, Paul is saying, that's what the law reflects. It does not give us the power to do what the law itself commands. 
It, it can tell us what ought to happen, but it never actually helps us accomplish it. And back when Israel received this law of how they were to be perfect and holy and righteous and reflect God's character in all that they did, do you remember what their response was? Oh, yes, we'll do that. We will certainly obey perfectly everything God commands us to do. How, how in the world were they going to do that? They didn't have the power to do that themselves. The law was meant to humble them, but instead it made them proud. And, and that's what the law does, Paul is saying. They, they didn't have hearts to trust in God, to depend on him. And, and when they tried to keep the law in their own power, the result was a legalism, a pride of their accomplishment. Oh yeah, we can definitely do what God wants done. Just like Abraham and Hagar were going to produce the heir. But the law can never produce the righteous life that God requires or the freedom that God desires and intends for us. Paul's saying, you deserve better. You were made for better than this. Because we're not free. We're not free in, in our ability, even our desire to obey God. And, and to bring the allegory up to date, and Paul says that, that's what corresponds to the present Jerusalem in slavery with her children. You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, these people who've come from Jerusalem into the church who are telling you you need to obey the law, they're taking you back into slavery. They're, they're the ones who are oppressing you. The Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem that these guys are coming from, that, that say they have authority, that's slavery. That's law-keeping slavery. So Paul's point is, those teachers may show you how to become sons of Abraham through circumcision, but you're going to end up being a son of Hagar, the slave woman, not the free woman. Because that's the other half of the allegory that he says here in verse 6. Sarah and her child Isaac, the Jerusalem above, in verse 26, is free, and she is our mother. The, the Jerusalem above that Paul's referring to, it's kind of a unique phrase. It never shows up in any of Paul's other writings. It, it's this image that he's picking up on uh, rabbinic thought. The, the rabbi said that the, the temple, the tabernacle here on earth were copies of what was done in heaven. So, so there's, there's an echo of that, that there's a Jerusalem above that is the community of God's people in his presence where God dwells. With, with righteousness and peace and justice. And, and that, that community is our life. Our life comes down from heaven, from the community of God and his people above. Sarah represents that city, he says, because she gave birth not through her own power, but by faith and, and by the work of God himself, something we could not produce. Therefore, Paul says, spiritually speaking, she's the mother of all who trust in Jesus. She, she's the mother of all who are walking by faith in the hope of God's promise and not trusting in their law-keeping or their obedience. Our life is by the work of God to make us his people and to put his spirit in us and write his law on our hearts so that those who are born of the Spirit are also parallel with those who are born of the promise. 
It's the fulfillment of God's promise, is the coming of his spirit to make us new and to, to live in us and to give us that freedom. And then in verse 30, he says it, it's not the slave woman and her son that are going to inherit. They're, they're not part of the covenant community. They, they can't get you there. It's we who live by faith in the Son of God, not in our law-keeping righteousness, who are free. See, here's, here's what's going on in Galatia, okay? The, these people from Jerusalem, these, maybe they're Jewish believers, they're insisting that Scripture says, oh, you know, Jews and Gentiles can't live together. So if you're going to be part of the covenant community, you have to become a Jew. And Paul says, no, don't you understand what God's purpose and what God's promise to Abraham was? It was always that Abraham was going to be a father of nations, of a multitude of people. And now the promise has been fulfilled in Jesus. And, and, and the heavenly Jerusalem, Paul says, in, in that imagery, the, the life of faith in God through Christ is giving birth he says, again, using that imagery, giving birth to multitudes of children. There's a quotation, that, that long quotation from Isaiah 54. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Okay, so what's Paul getting at here? This is a promise that God gave to Isaiah about the exiled people in the Old Covenant returning back from Babylon into the land. And he's saying, look, you, you had a multitude before, and, and it's, it's been wiped out. The city's desolate. It's in ruins. But I'm going to restore you. I'm going to take away the curse. And right now you see yourself as barren, but let me tell you, when the Messiah comes, the people of God will again be a huge multitude, more than you can number. Right now you look barren, but you will be. The people of God, the family of God will be an, an overwhelming number. And all that has come to reality in Jesus. And it's the people who are trying to get you to obey God's law as the measure of being his people who are taking you back into slavery. That's the path of curse and barrenness and slavery and destruction. And they're, they're even persecuting you, Paul says in verse 29. Just as at the time he was, Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Now, we don't know if there was physical persecution going on, if it, if it was exclusion, if it was you know, just withdrawing into their own group and telling them, you guys don't, you're not really Christians because you're not with us. That's what happens when flesh is at work. Our flesh rises up to judge and condemn others and then punish them for not measuring up to the standard. And, and then he closes in chapter 5, verse 1. Don't return to slavery. Don't, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to Sinai. The Messiah has set you free, and his purpose is to keep you free and to live in that freedom. Don't, don't bend your neck to, to take on this heavy burden of the law of God that, that you can't carry, you weren't made to carry. 
not just because it, it leads to pride in your law-keeping, but it belongs to an older era before the Messiah came. Remember, the law was simply to point us to Jesus, not, not to do the work that only Jesus could do, to insist on law-keeping as the measure of whether I'm in the family of God is saying that the Messiah hasn't come yet. And, and Jew and Gentile alike are all still under the commandments of the law. But if Christ has come, you are free. You're free. Now, maybe for us as Americans, we, we maybe even, I don't know, yawn a little at that. Like, yeah, of course we're free. We're Americans, right? We've always been free. Sort of sound like the Jews in Jesus' day. We've never been slaves to anyone, right? What is Paul talking about here? What, is, what does freedom look like? I ran across this helpful insight from another pastor. It's said, true freedom is where no lack of opportunity, ability, or desire prevents you from being what you were meant to be. In other words, to be truly free, you have the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to do what will be for your ultimate good, to live out what you were intended to be. My wife Amelia was in a skydiving club in college. And some of you would say, wow, that sounds really cool. And some of you say, wow, that sounds really stupid. And some of you will say, wow, that sounds just like Amelia. <laughs> Daredevil. Amelia talked about uh, the, the great experiences she had in college so much that our, our older daughter, Jackie, got, her to, got Amelia to agree that for her 18th birthday, she would take Jackie skydiving with her. Now, Jackie had the desire to go skydiving, but she didn't have the opportunity. Amelia had the opportunity, the ability, and the desire. Then when Jackie turned 18, they go off to the airfield. So now she has the freedom to do what she thinks is going to be good for her and bring her life. But there's another problem. They get to the airfield. Amelia has the opportunity and the ability to skydive because she's done it before, but Jackie has no ability. She doesn't know how to skydive. So she has to take a crash course. She, she has to get the training to do the skydiving, the crash course. Yeah, great phrase, right? Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate that. Put that in the dad joke file. Now she has the ability, and now it lines up with her desire, right? So she now has opportunity, ability. But what if she goes up in that plane and they get up to 10,000 feet and the door is open and all of a sudden she looks down at the tiny fields way below and she starts thinking, you know, I'm not sure this is a great idea. Now she doesn't have the desire to do what she thinks will bring her life. And one commentator says, you know, there's something interesting about desire, right? You can act without desire, but it won't be a free act. For example, you, know, you might be so embarrassed in front of the flight instructor or your mom that you go ahead and jump even though you don't really want to. Or maybe you tell yourself, you know what, I spent $300 to go up in this plane. I'm jumping out even if I don't really want to because my fear of losing $300 is greater than my fear of making a crash. You jump, but the experience is not what we would call freedom, right? Because you're acting under external constraints. And 
I think in an extent, that's some of what Paul's getting at here. It's the way some Christians try to keep God's law. We, we don't really delight in God's law, but we obey out of some kind of fear, fear of other people's perceptions, fear of hell, fear of measuring up, fear of something. So we go through the outward motions of law-keeping, but our desires are somewhere else. And what Paul is getting at is that when Christ brings freedom, he's actually bringing us into the freedom to actually do what we were made to do, to desire what God desires, to love what God loves, to say no to what God tells us to say no to. You do it freely, you do it willingly, you do it joyfully, and the law can never do that. There's one other element of freedom, though, remember? You get to the airport, you have the opportunity to go skydiving, you have the ability, now you have the desire. You look down at the fields, say your fear's gone, you have the desire to jump, so you jump. But as you fall, the parachute malfunctions and it doesn't open. Are you free? Well, in some senses you are. In those first three senses you are. But now gravity also says you're free to make a big crater. In a really important way, you're not free at all. What you are doing happily, freely, knowingly is leading you to destruction. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. Whether you know it or not, you're a slave to destruction. And it would be the height of foolishness to rejoice in the freedom of a skydive if it leads to destruction. That's what Paul's trying to point out. In order to be really free, you have to have not just the opportunity, the ability, and the desire to act. The acts that you choose have to lead to true life, have to lead to what we were meant to be. That's what Paul's getting at. Trying to keep God's law, trying to be identified by some standard, by some measure of obedience as a way of knowing him or pleasing him or being identified as his child never brings freedom. It only brings death, it brings judgment, it brings slavery. And you deserve better. You were made for freedom. That's what God wants for you. Law-keeping can never make you free in your ability. He's going to tell you what to do, but, but it will never enable you to do it. Anyone ever experienced that? I know what I ought to do, but I don't find the ability to do it. There's an old uh, little Puritan rhyme, I think, that goes back to the 1600s. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings that bids us fly and gives us wings. That's what the law can never do. And it can never make you free in your desire because God's law, again, can tell you what to do, but it can't make you want to do it. It can't make you love to do it. Do you ever wonder at some of the expressions of love and delight about God's law that we read in the Bibles? Oh, how I love your commandments. They're sweeter to me than honey from the comb. How I delight in your law. It's perfect and it's beautiful, the psalmists say. Only the Spirit of God can change your heart so that you love God's Word and love His law and love His truth and want to walk in it. So that we're truly free because we also now have the ability to act what towards 
towards what will bring life and joy. You know, from, from the whole flow of the paragraph, the emphasis is clear. Paul is quoting that Genesis 12, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Or Genesis 21, sorry. Cast her out, Paul's saying. Now, first of all, I don't think he's saying that those rival teachers are not believing in Jesus. I don't think he's necessarily saying they're not really Christians. He's saying that they failed to realize the truth of the gospel. They're, they're so focused on Mount Sinai and the law that's resulted in slavery from which the Messiah has come to set them free. It, it's like what Peter and Barnabas were doing in Antioch, remember, that Paul recounts earlier here where he had to confront them because they were withdrawing from the Gentiles out of fear for the Jewish believers. They're denying that the Messiah's death and resurrection had, had broken the power of the law, set the slaves free, and opened that promise to all the nations. And I don't think Paul's, necess- I don't think Paul's literally saying to get rid of these people. I mean, it's possible But I think what he's probably saying is, listen, listen to the message, pay attention and get that message out of your life. Do not listen to it. Do not head down that path. Do not give them any room in your heart or your life. Stand firm. Don't don't take on your neck the yoke of law keeping. That is a slavery that Christ has come to set you free from. You know what Abraham's problem is? is the same problem that we have. The same problem that God's people always have. He, he forgot and then he got fearful and then he got impatient. He, he forgot what God had already done for him. He forgot what God had promised or, or it just it seemed less meaningful than, than, than the problem that was right in front of him, which was not having this heir. And, and then he got afraid and, and then he got tired and then he took matters into his own hands. When we forget, we take matters into our own hands. When, when we fail to trust, we take matters into our own hands because we feel like maybe if I obey, maybe if I make something happen, maybe if I, if I get the right plan or the right program or the right system in place, I can, I can get God's results. I tried trusting God, but nothing has changed. And that's where all kinds of helpful people will step in with seven keys to this and five steps to that and three secrets to the other and... There may be wisdom in those things. There there may be some really genuinely good insight in those things. But the problem is better habits will never change our hearts. And if that's what we're relying on, that's just another form of law keeping. Well, if I just follow these six steps, then I can become the person. Then I can get the result. Then I can be what I want to be or what I think God, God will provide through that. And the other danger is, you know, what works for me can quickly become what should work for everyone. So follow my steps and you should get the results I got unless you're doing something wrong and then you're the problem. You see how it's planning a yoke of slavery on us again. When we start saying, this is what it looks like to be a faithful Christian, or this is the secret to... to Make your kids turn out the right way or get the girl or the guy of your dreams or get the success that you long for. And then we measure other people's godliness or spirituality on whether they're getting the same results that we got from following the steps that worked for us. 
law-keeping that lets me define whether or not I'm really a child of God and how close I am to Jesus. Graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Dr. Sharon Hottie Miller uh, shared this. I loved it. In our culture, identity is increasingly becoming a religion. That realization has given me a lot of clarity about the language that's used around identity, how finding your true identity will save you, the sacredness of your particular identity, the worldview that emerges from running everything through the filter of one's identity. And of course, there's always an evangelistic-like zeal in talking about our identity and, and wanting others to approve or recognize it. Now, she says that this attention to recognizing differences in backgrounds and experiences and perspectives is needed. It's a needed corrective to us who, who may tend to think that our what we look like and our experience is the standard that everyone should measure up to. It's a needed correction, she says, but the religious nature of language around identity has helped me better grasp the role that it's playing. Oh, can't you see that? that? That's totally what our world does, isn't it? Is we want to put a label on you and put you in a box and decide whether you're on this side or that side or in this group or in that group and and, and then that becomes the answer. That becomes the key to understanding everything about you. And I don't need to know anything else because you have this label put on you. That's slavery. Can't you, Paul's saying, can't you, that's its own kind of slavery, isn't it? To enslave ourselves and other people. Christians are the freest people in the world, Paul says. That, that's what we're meant to be. And he's fighting with all his heart to expose these teachers who are coming in to, to tell them, no, here's what you need to take on to, to be really in, to know that you're really the people of God. And Paul's saying, no, can't you see? That is slavery. That is death. That is destruction. You have what you need. You have Christ. Freedom in Christ is not sort of the icing on the cake of Christianity. Freedom in Christ is Christianity. It is the gospel. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, Paul says. In another place, Paul talks about Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not your obedience, not your performance, not your success. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ is your hope. Christ is your glory. Christ is your life and your freedom. And that frees us from the need to, to you know, always compare ourselves to others, to focus on our goodness or our commitment or our correctness. The pressure's off, Paul is saying. It calls us in community to stand together and, and to stand in the freedom that Christ has given us, not just for ourselves, but for one another. To recognize that Christ has made us all free. It's not the ability to do what we please. It's not the ability to listen to our hearts and, and do whatever sounds good to us. It's having the new opportunity, ability, desire to live into what God actually created us for, to do what is for our ultimate good. You deserve better than what this world has to offer. Stand firm.
and the freedom that Christ has given you. Do not submit yourselves to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we are the fulfillment of this promise that the children of the desolate one, the one who is desolate, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Thank you that you have fulfilled in Jesus your promise to, to bring to Abraham people from every nation and tribe to be a part of the community of the Savior. And that that is our life by faith in what Jesus has done. Oh, Father, help us to see the ways that we tend to put on ourselves and especially on others a, a yoke of slavery, of law-keeping, righteousness, and identity. Oh, may our identity, our hope, our glory be in Jesus in what he has done. Help us to live in that freedom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.